we're going to start to see is the attempt to keep things out of the public domain in a piecemeal, confusing way, in a way that is much harder to rally the general public behind. The people who are really hurt by this actually are libraries, archivists, historians who are looking at really old music and trying to preserve it because there's one record that's brittle and they don't know who owns it and they can't digitize it without running into this problem. Welcome to Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And today we're going to talk about sound and what we're able to do with it. And of course, sound is something very important to us, people who love radio, people who love music, people who love podcasting, and even people who love YouTube, because sound is so much a part of what we do. And most people understand there are restrictions on what you can use and how you can use it, whether certain, it's... A, certain recordings belong to certain people. Exactly. And there are some recordings we sort of understand seem magically available to all of us. So we use this this word called public domain to talk about uh, maybe it's an old 78 or it's a wire recording where no one owns the copyright any longer. And it's, it's something which is available for anyone to use however they need to. But in, in, in particularly important, right... We talk about preservation all the time now and, and all these recordings that are starting to degrade away. Sure. And we want to make sure we're saving the sound legacy of our culture. And so there are archivists and librarians who worry about, can I copy this thing? And if I copy it and digitize it, can I share it? Can I make it available for other people to hear this copy? Can I put it on our website so that it's not just locked away in a vault somewhere, but someone can hear this voice that was once locked away on a on a piece of shellac? We can liberate it to everybody. Yeah, make sure that it, it's preserved for, for history moving forward. And, 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 of- and preserved not just not but not just in a vault, right? You can put right. something in a vault and it's preserved. But yet that other step is when everyone else gets to hear it and to and to take advantage of and, it and to use it in their uh, creative projects, be them professional or amateur. Like you know, to put a piece of sound into your radio program or podcast and know that you are um, not going to be challenged for the use of that sound. Yeah, I mean, someone's not going to ask you to take it down, is, or even worse, sue you. That is public domain's. Uh, strength. That is what the power of knowing when something is in the public domain means that you have the freedom to to use it and to share it and to remix it how you see fit. And luckily, we have a guide to help us pick through all of this because we understand it's complex and it's arcane, but it has these real world effects. Well, things are changing. We actually know that that public domain is um, it's being uh, legislated as we speak in in Washington DC that that a or, bill or not legislated well, in a, certain ways a, a bill that is very complicated has passed the House of Representatives and is currently awaiting action in the Senate which will which will change how public domain ages moving forward well actually doesn't change how it ages moving forward, and 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 it's kind of hard to understand that 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 is actually the problem. And rather than you and I trying to explain it up front here, Eric, I think it will. We are better off turning to our guest, Catherine Trendacosta, who is a policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. People may know about the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They tend to work on behalf of the public interest, yeah. uh, interpreted often as a way in when it comes to intellectual property, when it comes to copyright, towards the idea that copyright 
isn't a forever thing that eventually works created pass into the public domain, which is something that Catherine will help us understand a little bit better. We're on the line with Catherine Trendacosta, policy analyst at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Catherine focuses on intellectual property, net neutrality, fair use, free speech online, and something called intermediary liability. Catherine, welcome to Radio Survivor. Thanks for having me. And we're on the line with you today primarily to talk about public domain, which I want to start by assuming most people know what public domain means, but maybe you should give us the thumbnail for people new to the concept. What is the public domain? The public domain is where works of any kind of media, anything written down or photographed, music, movies, etc., when they are no longer or just aren't because some things just aren't um, copyrighted, they fall into the public domain, which means that you can use them without needing permission or use them for any purpose without permission or payment to the person who originally made it. Yeah, my, one of my favorite things in public domain is the idea that there's a lot of really great classic cartoons that you can stream or download from places like archive.org, and you're not engaging in internet piracy. You're, you're watching stuff that was created um, a long time ago by really great people, and uh, it's there for you to watch. You don't have to pay a dime. One of the most famous stories about the public domain is the story of how It's a Wonderful Life became a famous Christmas movie is because the people who owned it had let their copyright lapse, the studio that originally owned it, let their copyright lapse. And so TV channels looking to show a movie on Christmas that didn't cost them anything just started playing It's a Wonderful Life because it didn't cost them anything. And then I believe that the people who owned it realized what was going on and were able to re-get their copyright. But for that period of time, the reason it is so ubiquitous and so like in the public imagination is because of that period of time where it was it was not copyrighted. I think that's an, an interesting point that we should untangle a little bit as we dive into this conversation, Catherine, is that people don't always realize that copyright law is, a, is an evolving beast. Uh, copyright law and what goes into the public domain and when is has been an ever-evolving question. Um, I don't think a lot of people know that the copyright's in the Constitution. It literally states it's in the Constitution. There's a copyright clause. It says that for the promotion of the useful arts, exclusive rights will be granted for a uh, limited period of time. That's a paraphrase. I don't want anyone to come away with the like idea that I, I was that it, those are the exact words, but that is the some of them are and some of them are my paraphrasing. And as time has gone on, the length of that copyright has grown and grown and grown far beyond what, in my opinion, uh, the Supreme Court has a different opinion. Uh, would match that original statement in the Constitution. And the core and, of that statement, I mean, what what does that mean? What is the core of the statement? What is the purpose of having a copyright and, and therefore for it being limited? What, what's the tension there? So the existence of copyright is intended to promote copyright and trademark and most intellectual property is intended to promote the advancement of the arts and the sciences. The idea being that giving people an exclusive right to what they've made for a period of time allows them to recoup money and to make a profit in a way that makes it worth doing. Mark Twain will write another novel 
because he's still getting paid for the 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 first one he wrote. And if he doesn't, Mar- if and if his novels get stolen right away by other publishers, if they just get published uh, willy nilly without Mark Twain ever getting paid, why would he even uh, devote his future years to writing? Right. Or I I don't have family like people who don't have family money trying to make it as a writer, it's very difficult to do that if you don't have some way of of recouping the cost. So it's supposed to be an incentive. The reason to limit it is kind of exactly what you would think it is. A, culture grows by people using their own culture, right? Like I point to this all the time and it's, it's the Aeneid doesn't exist if Homer had had the kind of copyright we have over the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? Virgil, ancient man writing about Aeneas and the founding of Rome based on a story by Homer, if Homer had had, the, had copyright in it and not allowed him to write and just said, I don't want other people to write it, that doesn't exist. And all of Shakespeare is based on other stories. Right. And, so, and, and Shakespeare continues to get used to this day, not right. only because it's a classic, but, but because when Hollywood adapts Romeo and Juliet for the, for the hundredth time, right. uh, it does they not depend on royalties anyone. on that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so Shakespeare was building off of culture that already existed and we build off of Shakespeare. That's how culture iterates and it grows. And it's also basing itself in a shared language that we have. So that's the first reason to keep it limited. The second is it doesn't incentivize creativity if you can make money off of one thing forever. Or if your descendants never have to work because they're making money off of something you made 90 years ago. Yeah. Or, I mean, or we get to this point where we're at now, at least how I view where we're at now, where um, the person who made the thing is not the one who holds the right. license. And so you just have more and more concentrated entities that own a whole uh, enormous chunk of the pie of the <laughs> cultural heritage of our of our generations and right. um, and and uh, control it for their own purposes instead of uh, letting it get used and letting it be shared. We're, we've been talking about uh, copyright, Catherine Trendacosta mm-hmm. of, from the EFF, and um, – we haven't talked yet about the 20th century where things things could get uh, – well, even media I, I gets I think we copied. should jump forward to, to now. I think we should jump <laughs> right. forward to the 21st we'll skip century. Over, we'll skip over film and recorded music Well, I don't think now. we need to go do the history to understand what's what's happening right now, Catherine. Right. And, and what, what I understand is that we're at this moment when uh, we've reached – the the maximum endpoint of protection, the well, so-called limited protection for a set of things that are copyrighted. Well, everything, is, isn't, that, isn't that correct? Everything that was created before 1923 is public domain? So, yes. It's, again, not to jump all the way back, but the sunny, what's called colloquially the Sonny Bono Act, it's the Copyright Extension Act, uh, extended copyright beyond the original term, which means that things that would have entered the public domain froze for a while. And so some things had entered the public domain, then nothing in the United States. I should be very clear, it's the United States. Other mm. countries have different terms. And um, this is why for a period of time until I think Canada harmonized its its laws with ours, James Bond was in the public domain in Canada, but not here. Um, then we would have gotten so, such interesting Canadian James Bond Right. Films. <laughs> Don't we want James Bond tracking a moose. Um, so 
that so we had things entering the public domain then the extension act came into being and nothing had entered entered the public domain um but starting next year in 2019 things are going to start entering the public domain again because the end the back date for what the copyright extension act lengthened the term finally runs out and so how Um, many years is that do you know the length of copyright is life of the author plus 70 years 70 if it's owned by an author it's life of the author plus 70 years and if it's owned by a corporation it's 120 years after creation or 95 years after publication whichever ends earlier but like there's a lot of numbers and so i sometimes think it's plus 90 it's plus 70 years not to pick on one entity but uh one of the ways that i (laughs) thought that this the one of the ways i've come to understand this is that um it's always going to get pushed backwards just so Steamboat Willie, Mickey Mouse's first cartoon, Correct. will never fall into the public domain. Uh, when I was in law school, I would often hear the joke that copyright law is whatever is best for Disney. And that's not just a joke, right? Because over, yeah. the, over the decades that this law has been evolving, it's, sort of, it's always been pushed backwards so that uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs will never f- fall into the public domain. Yeah, and so to... Um... I work at the Electronic Frontier Foundation as a policy analyst, but I was an entertainment reporter for years before I started working here. And a lot of the stuff you would cover is is sort of Disney's continual use of its own IP over and over and over again and its grip on it. And so that sort of feeds into what we're seeing now when it comes to copyright. All of these places don't want to lose a grip on any of this. And so we're at a moment where um, things were about to change. Yes. But dun dun dun, they might not change so so fast. Yeah, so we're about to see things enter the public domain, and that's a great thing for creativity. That's a great thing for other artists who want to build on things. And we want to a robust. We, there are studies that show that a robust public domain leads to sort of a robust creative economy. So it's important that things start to enter the public domain. But as we've sort of been talking about, large corporations don't want to see that happen. And it's, it's an easy argument to sort of understand when you don't think about it in terms of Disney, when you think about it in terms of a writer or a singer who um, doesn't... Yeah, the estate of J.R.R. Tolkien. But not even that, like people who are still alive. Okay. Um, so that's like a, a little bit easier, especially in the context of newer technologies where a lot of... Um, Artists make the like make the sympathetic argument that, you know, the way that they used to make money was on album sales, but that doesn't exist anymore. And so they need to be given the money that they should have been getting from streaming and that should have, that should go on or they need a new right to sort of balance out the changes in technology. And when you don't when you forget that the people who who hold the copyright on most of this or the people who get paid the most are labels and not artists, um, it's easy to get sort of drawn into that argument. But, you know, especially for these older works, um, labels own them, right? Uh, they actually had to do a whole new law that makes it so that artists can't give their copyrights away. Because it was being abused for so long. So what we're talking about is beginning in 2019, works that were created 
before roughly 1924. Yeah. And this could be this could yeah. be music, it could be it could be film, it could be books are about to enter into the public domain again. Yes. Um, I believe one of the films is the very first, it's a silent film. It was the very first like Hunchback of Notre Dame movie. So, you know, things that are pivotal to the culture, things that are important to our culture, but for which there is still for, for some companies an enduring commercial interest in, uh, that they wish to retain the copyrights for. And, so what is happening then? How is this becoming attention? Why are we talking about this right now? So the Copyright Extension Act passed in the, in 1998. That was a pretty huge victory for the corporations in that it kept things locked down. But uh, when they tried to do a similar large-scale move to lock down their copyright with SOPA and PIPA, they ran into a kind of resistance that I, they didn't expect. They don't expect the, and this is largely due to the internet where people are a lot more aware of these kinds of issues because of how the internet transmits media. So what we've been, what we're going to start to see is the attempt to keep things out of the public domain in a piecemeal confusing way, in a way that is much harder to rally the general public behind. And so uh, can you very briefly remind us what SOPA and PIPA are? So um, SOPA and PIPA were two bills. Um, they, they, they died a while ago. They were the SOPA stood for the Stop Online Piracy Act. And it was basically a way to make it easier for companies to go to courts and get websites blocked on the Internet to force ISPs to block people from getting to for, websites. For alleged copyright violations. For alleged copyright violations, correct. So you can imagine um, a world where, where Twitter could get blocked because somebody posted a link to to the new uh, or rather, Avengers Or rather than a link, posted a, a still from oh, yeah. the newest Avengers Even a Avengers still or just right. a, or, a GIF. <laughs> or the standard one that we see all the time, YouTube gets blocked because someone didn't even upload a video about uh like that is the entire Avengers movie, but they posted a review of the Avengers movie that included some clips from it, which is clearly fair use. But if this is if it's an easy way to take stuff down, it was uh, the other thing that SOPA would have done is there is this. I hate to get into all this jargon. There is a provision in the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that insulates YouTube from getting into trouble. Huh. If someone, if as long as they um, have a certain set of like they meet certain requirements, and that is things that you have heard about, I'm sure, when, uh, the way that they take things down, the the policy where they will disable your account if you have a certain number of complaints, all of that is to get them into the safe harbor provision where they can't be sued by large corporations, uh, where they can't be sued by copyright holders. Only the person who uploaded the material can. And, and, and you mentioned another, and you mentioned another uh, act which which was attempted to pass around copyright called PIPA. PIPA was just it was just SOPA again, basically. Okay, so, so these, when we see these... SOPA PIPA, they were basically they were yeah. just. Basically. And what's significant about them is that uh, they seemed like done deals in Washington D.C. They're about to significantly, you know, alter the way the internet works forever, and. The internet people people online uh, really surprised Washington with an organizing effort that that stopped these bills in their tracks. 
Right. Um, and so uh, the content holders uh, in an event like have found that if you can mobilize the Internet, it's much harder. And so anything that assaults the public domain is going to be done in a less obvious manner than, say, SOPA and PIPA were an assault on copyright and fair use and all sorts of long held rules about how the Internet works. And the need to not run into that same thing when it comes to the public domain is the reason that we see things like the Classics Act. Okay, so 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 you're yeah, you're telling us now that there are there is there's legislation afoot again. So are we anticipating legislation, or is there something afoot now that would again trim back? No, I think the things that, it, that enter something, into something has passed the House and it's okay. awaiting action in the Senate. So um, there there are always. Um, things that are being talked about in Congress and how far they get or how far they don't get is a mystery even to me. Um, But the one that we are looking at now, the one that is sort of the first of what we at EFF see as this attempt to push back the public domain again is a bill called Classics, except it's not. And this is because I just, everything in Congress is a nightmare. Um, they, They make it hard to talk about. Yeah. So there is a bill that is largely supported by everyone called the Music Modernization Act. The Music Modernization Act streamlines the payment of royalties for streaming services to artists in a way that basically everyone is okay with. Yeah. We sometimes we see a split between between the 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 streaming companies, you know, the Pandora's and the Spotify's and the artists who who contribute the music. But in this case, you're saying with the um, with MMA, Mm -hmm. that uh, the Music Modernization Act is is making uh, most people happy. Yes. Like like both sides have sort of come to an agreement that this is a way forward. And when we say both sides, we mean the Spotify's of the world and the musical artists of the world. I would even not even say musical artists. I would say labels. Okay. Record Um, labels are who really care. Yes. So, so that is, that is the music modernization act in the house of representatives, a bill called classics got merged with the music modernization act. All caps classics. Yes. (laughs) Classics. So classics and I apologize because it's it, and this is why it's so dangerous and insidious is it is so complicated for the average person. It's hard to understand how it's pushing back against the public domain. Mm-hmm. So when Congress changed the copyright rules, they put everything under the federal copyright that was published after 1972, except for sound recordings that were recorded before 1972, those um, are still governed by state copyright rules. And that includes a thing called public performance rights, which is, anyway. And so they're all under these state copyright rules that in some cases, because of the way the states work, extend much longer than the uh, federal rules which is insane because the federal rules are already very long. (laughs) And so the people who are really hurt by this actually are um, libraries, archivists, historians who are looking at really old music 
and trying to preserve it because there's one record that's brittle and they don't know who owns it and they don't they can't digitize it without running into this problem of these these state copyright laws existing for a very long time. So if I understand correctly, what we have here is a problem that exists is that right. for recordings prior to 1972, musical recordings, it's right. a tangle of state laws that dictate many different terms over what remains in copyright or what may not be copyright, may, may not remain in copyright. And this is something which there's an interest For in harmonizing. Certain, yes. And then it's, it gets further confusing because the reason I bring up public performance is that is a specific because it's some types of copyright expired and some didn't and public mm. performance is one of the what is right. one of, is the one that like didn't so uh, and i think it's, it's like a lot of it's I, just so many granular things yeah. um but what classics does is it does not bring those recordings in line with the federal um rules about how long copyright exists but it does bring the scheme for collecting royalties it does make that easier and make them make the sort of federal apparatuses for collecting royalties available for these state laws and Catherine Trendacosta, policy analyst at EFF, something you just said, I just want to underline it because I, I didn't understand it before we started today, that one of the main reasons that this might matter, that some of the people whose work is being stymied are archivists who might have a recording that they see value in and want to make a copy of to share with the world, but they they have to stop and think and basically not make that copy because they don't want to violate some complex law that that is still in play. And so we might end up um, having things, you know, pre-1972, post-1923 sound recordings being lost because because they can't be copied. Right. Um, And then you get into if it's an old recording, you don't what if you can't figure out who owns it? Because it's so old that whatever company or person involved can't be found anymore. So you mean if you're doing and, due diligence, you yeah, are an archivist, if, and you you want to do your due diligence and find out who owns this copyright, so that you may obtain because things can be done with permission, yeah. and but right. you would have to find the person who can give you permission. Right. This is this is what's called the orphan works problem. Everything in copyright has a name. Um, and so that's called the orphan works problem. And, and sometimes there are provisions for it. But often what the content companies want is if you want to do this, the requirements that you have to show that you've done where you tried to find them are so onerous that it's not it becomes not worth it. And so that's a, there's a, it's just a lot of layers to it. And, and this kind of making it easier to collect money, but not making it easier for these things to enter the public domain is a sort of end run around why the public domain exists and, and the difference between state and federal laws. So Catherine Trendacosta, you're a policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And so what are we looking at in 2019? What is the sort of, you know, thinking about this from the standpoint of the public interest and maybe defining the public interest as a world in which uh, some works of art 
become part of our public domain, publicly owned, part of the culture right. at large. Um, you know, defining that as a public good, where archivists might be able to make copies of things for preservation purposes, where so, podcasters can actually use the material freely without being concerned. So they're not that, lost, and yeah. so so they're not accidentally lost, right? Because right. the copy were were. Uh, were lost. Uh, what what are we looking at in 2019? What's the threat to this? What what can happen to our to this you know continuing train of which over the years, year to year, things enter the public domain? What is in Congress right now that might alter that future? So, in terms of what is in Congress right now pending, that's that's pretty much classics is the only one that's advanced far enough to be have a name and to look at and, and why would and, and, and can you can you explain uh, sort of very simply why does that what is it about this act that threatens the public domain specifically what does it so, do that that, that that threatens things or right. compared to what they would be otherwise if this act were not to pass so what most people with um sort of a wide-eyed lens on this uh, thinks makes the most sense for copyright and the most sense for the public domain is for us to just bring the 1972 recordings issue in line with the federal laws. That is to say that recordings will enter the public domain on the same schedule as books and movies and television and so on and so So that far. musical recording shouldn't be treated differently than a right, movie. The pr- the pre-1972 recordings should not be treated differently and that everything should be harmonized and it should all fall under the same scheme. Classics keeps the exception carved out so that these recordings stay under this weird, crazy patchwork of state laws while at the same time creating a mechanism that is harsher because it's a federal mechanism to collect money or to police quote unquote violations. And so you see sort of, again, going back to these, these libraries um, who maybe they like under the state law, they sort of know what they, what they can and can't do, but with this law in place, don't know anymore. Um, and, or the, because the law makes it easier to, to get at them for something because it's a different law than whatever state they're in. And it just creates a, so much more confusion about what you are allowed to do. And this was an area that was, as you can sort of tell through my history of it, this was an area that was already incredibly confusing. And putting another law on top of that is going to deter people from doing things that they should legally be able to do with things that should be in the public domain. Share them and play them and preserve them and stream them and preserve them. Yes. And we're talking about um we're talking about recorded music uh from the 20th well, century. Any recording, any audio recording. Right. Any audio. Um right. and so speeches. The 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 thing that we want to point out here is that this kind of weird twisted carving out of an exception and then layering more laws on top of that. That is what we at EFF think is the future of laws that hurt the public domain. I, like We find it unlikely that we're going to see a successful Copyright Extension Act 2. 
because there would be too much resistance against yeah. that because now right. there's enough people alerted to uh, the dangers or alerted to the effects. And as we saw with SOPA, they'd be willing right. to resist and, and, and make things more difficult for legislators uh, otherwise willing to sign on and not think too much so, of it. So one of the reasons our episode of Radio Survivor today is so difficult to record, the, one of the reasons the hosts and the guests are getting their words tongue-tied is because they've made this issue complex enough right. that it's difficult to make media about and, and spread spread information and, and so i want right. to i want to take this in a, in a in a particular direction here uh catherine and and yeah. to kind of spell this out for you know we, we we've taken one angle right which is uh the preservation angle the idea there'd be an archivist or librarian who would want to make uh, a digital copy let's say and and for the very least of of say like an old seventy eight record, yeah, right, um, or even a even a vinyl record or or a, or magnetic tape, or who might want to uh, also be able to, to to place it online or to put it up for public exhibition in a way. And the reason why they wouldn't do this, it's not because there are copyright cops, right, who are going door to door, you know, and acting like the DEA looking for copyright violations. It is more rather that that they're required often by their institutions to be aware of copyright law and to and to obey it and it's sort of an institutional liability in which they're going to be conservative it's like a cloud of uncertainty it's a cloud of uncertainty and they don't want to get sued they don't want to get their right. library or in, or university or institution sued and so when it comes to this sort of risk it, it, you know they have to do the assessment and they may choose to avoid the risk and and not and not do this work Right. And it is um, an incredibly confusing issue because preservation is a public good. You would think preserving and sharing um, old music or old recordings is something we would want to do. We we don't want to lose these things. We've seen throughout history that losing parts of our culture isn't, is a thing we want to prevent. But libraries are good actors. They're not pirates trying to make a buck off of someone's work. And so they're going to follow the rules as they understand them. And when they are this confusing, there is no way to understand them. And so they'll just not do it. A couple episodes back here on Radio Survivor, I asked a question to uh, a, an archivist at radio station KEXP because they had just engaged in a really cool um, archiving project where they invited members of the public to come in with their tapes and to to digitize them there at the radio station. And I was like, my next question was like, well, that is delightful. When can I, where's the website where I can go click on these links and hear these things? And there was a collective silency shrug because it's too complicated. And yeah. now I kind of understand more why it's too complicated to share these things because there's no clear direction in yeah, the fair use in the copyright in the public domain laws that we have currently. Yeah, you can make some argument about um, what's called like uh, some argument about shifting something from one medium to another, but once you start trying to share it, you just run into these roadblocks. Right. Oh, like that's just so many of them, and so and and history doesn't do us any good if you can't share it. That's like. Bar one, like that is like no one of anything. It doesn't yeah. do anyone any good if if I've preserved it, but I still have to lock it in a vault until we figure out whether or not who owns it or if it's in the public domain or any of those things. 
Catherine uh, Trendacosta, I, I also want to talk a little bit about uh, almost a little bit more individual effect here, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, here in 2018, in many ways more so than even 1998, uh, when the original Copyright Extension Act uh, passed, the Sony Bono Act, as it's known, people have become digital creators, you know, right. whether whether you're working on YouTube or you're posting things to Facebook or to Twitter or on your Tumblr and you you work with in and so much of the stuff that people work with are things that were created by somebody else at some other time, even if they're, mm-hmm. you know, and it may be the raw stuff, collage or, you know, remixes mashups however you want to put it you know something which which people engage in and and or you know you know in terms of being a dj or being a curator making your own uh radio program that you wish to share as a podcast it gets complicated right yeah and 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 we as podcasters eric and i and many people who are podcasters recognize that you know one of the reasons why there isn't a lot of music in podcasting is because you have to get permission from the copyright holder to, to pay feature their their music. And well, you have to pay for it if they want you to pay for it, but you know, they may or may not ask you to pay for it, but they have the right they to ask or, you to pay for it. They have the right to ask you to pay for it, or if you uh if um they ask you not to pay for it, they can also uh ask for other things like approval of mm-hmm. the final product yeah. that you've made. That is a, a common thing that we actually see is is you can use our thing, but um, if we don't like the way, but you have to show us how you're going to use it beforehand, and we can yeah. Don't can criticize it, it or don't right. criticize our company. Sure, don't, yeah. don't speak ill of the music industry. That'd be a terrible way for 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 major media companies to get to control their footage. If right. if some if a if a YouTube channel like Feminist Frequency was not allowed right. to use a clip from like a video game because they're pointing out how misogynist it is, uh, we wouldn't be so, in a good place. So usually what steps in there is fair use, which is um, the principle that you can use copyrighted material without permission or payment for certain what are deemed like socially valuable purposes. Um, that's so criticism and commentary almost always. Um, that is that is a purpose that is usually pretty strong, especially if you're but uh, is very strong. But one of the factors in a fair use analysis is how much you use and and you have to use only the amount that bolsters your argument yeah and that if you have a good lawyer um you can make some better arguments <laughs> but like but lawyers cost money <laughs> money so um I, if you've ever seen oh my god i'm gonna get the name of the room wrong because um but there was a documentary about The Shining and about all of these people who right. have taken this movie apart. And they use a lot of that movie right. in that documentary because they're showing what these people believe by showing you the movie. And that's a, and so they use more than you usually see because they were able to get good advice. Because they had they a good lawyer. Get, right. So, and let's take it to somebody who is just your average, who's your average sort of person. Right. Um, who is, you know maybe wants to make a podcast, maybe wants to make a YouTube video that would use uh, recordings. If they were using recordings that are in the public domain, you know, let's they just say the whole thing, it, right? You can use as much of the recording you like. You, If you just want to make a, a radio show where you're playing pre 19, you know, old recordings that are out that were that are in the public domain. 
it's not a problem. But as you explain it to us right now, it's almost impossible to know if an old sound recording really is in the public domain because right. it may depend on what state you're in. But then it could also depend on what state the listener is in or what state the person who says they own the copyright is in and you won't know which prevails. And it's again, yeah. it's hard right. to untangle. For the average person, it's it's incredibly difficult. And if it were in the public domain, so because like fair use would allow you to do some things, but that's an analysis that's a lot to do and is like shouldn't have to be, but can get really sophisticated in terms of law. Whereas if it's in the public domain, you don't have to worry. You just right. flat out don't have to do that calculation. Um, and and that is sort of the value is the ability to to create your own things based on our cultural history. That's why the public domain is valuable. Uh, and and to lock it down doesn't actually do us any good. Right. It just gives us people, it just gives us companies redoing their own things in perpetuity and no one else getting to build on that cultural legacy. Right. And so right now, our legislators in Washington are considering this act, classics, right. Uh, which yeah. might it's passed the house. It's, it's passed it's the house in the now. Senate. So it's now it's sitting, sitting in the Senate. And, and, and I'm sure, you know, there are many well-meaning senators and uh, representatives who sat and looked at this and said, well, I would like to make it easier for artists to get paid. I'm sure that's how it was sold. I'm sure that's how they yes. brought on board, and, you know, uh, and that is why they want to go for it. And, and they're, many of them are just as smart as their constituents Meaning if their constituents have a hard time understanding the situation in its complexity, they probably do too. <laughs> and then there's the part where even outside of uh, if their constituents don't understand it, how can they? You run into the thing where all they hear is I'd like it to be easier for, for artists to get paid. And it takes me, what, how long have we been talking? That long yeah. to explain this issue. And so it's hard for me as someone who works at a nonprofit organization that tries to activate its members, explaining this issue in a way that that makes them understand the thing that they are going to lose if this act passes is incredibly difficult. And I think we've done a relatively good job of it as much as we can. But this is what they're hoping for. They're hoping that I they don't get this many calls about the public domain. And, and so it does kind of add up to that. It adds up to calls now to senators. I don't know. Has, right. has the companion legislation been entered into the Senate yet? Yes. And it's, it's was sitting in, in, in committee. Um, uh, Senator Ron Wyden of, of Oregon is, is sort of the main person who's pointing out the, the pro clear problems with this. Um, but so that is but it is it is in the Senate and has passed the House and it is it is classics slash the Music Modernization Act. They've been merged. And so you can it's technically, I believe, named the Music Modernization right. Act because they they combined them and then took the other. And name. you were pointing out earlier in the podcast today that the Music Modernization Act is actually a, a is a good bill. And now the classics has been attached to it. And that's the bad part. So it's it's complicated. Right. It is incredibly complicated because the other part, like, it's really hard. It's a, So it's already a complicated issue attached to something that people like. Like, there are just a, there's a lot of maneuvering going on to make it very hard to to sort of 
do the right thing in this situation. Can it be made better? Is there an opportunity right now in a Senate committee to take this and make it better rather than, you know, to make it easier for artists to get paid for their work um, made within, you know, that, that, that stands under copyright without the bad parts? So, um, no and yes, which I know is not a useful answer. Um, <laughs> the theme of today. Uh, it's, it's just generally sort of a bad idea. Um, there are things that could make it less bad that have been discussed. Things like an, like an exception for, uh, archivists and libraries or, or to br- to start bringing that stuff into the public domain, but like far later than it really should be, um, Ron Wyden, who I named uh, before, one of the re- ways he has sort of tried to fight this bill is he's introduced his own bill that I, is called Access. And his bill is just, if you want to do this, that's fine. Let's just bring everything in the federal rules. Let's get rid of this patchwork of state laws and just bring it all under, which we should have done in 1998 anyway. Uh, it's called full federalization. Is the and the idea is, again, that, that sound recordings – would have the same copyright terms as motion pictures, books, photographs, and others works of art, uh, whether they were made in 1971 or 1973, whereas right now uh, musical recordings from before 1972 are not covered under federal statute but under a patchwork of state statutes. Correct. So that, that 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 would help fix a lot of the problems. Um, beyond sort of the way that classics is layering things, it it is deeply confusing for this one subset of material to have a different set of laws applied to it than any other piece of media. Well, if people uh, are concerned about this, uh, should they talk to their senators? Yes, and you can go to act.eff.org, which is our action center. And we've made it really easy for you to just email your senator using our uh, system. Catherine Trendacosta, policy analyst at EFF. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Thank you so much for having me. Eric Klein, thank you so much for bringing us an interview with Catherine Trendacosta. Um, you know, it's something when we initially even talked about doing this interview we had to talk out a little bit about why not because it's not important but because you know sometimes it's difficult to get into the weeds on policy and copyright on a podcast and a radio show and i want to make sure that we were if we were going to ask our audience to come along with us and ask folks to kind of try and wrap their head around this stuff that there was a good reason for it well we here at radio survivor are not uh we're not a show about everything. Radio Survivor is a show about community radio produced by uh, staff and volunteers. And podcasts. Podcasting. And even maybe YouTube and, 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 uh, and the sorts public of access TV. In, yeah, the sorts of creativity on the internet, but also in physical meat space that sort of um, that empowers communities. Right? And so we care about a lot of things. But we also we really care about like how how people that produce content uh, can move forward. And we also love love the archive. We we also love the archivists and the librarians. And we see uh, that community media and uh, these other community institutions sort of often have an overlap in mission, have a lot to share and learn with each other. And um, 
they work in similar veins. Mm -hmm. Yes, and so that's why we care about old recordings, and in some cases, not so old recordings, and whether or not they might be eventually open for use in a podcast where it's difficult to use music or be able to be distributed online to people, researchers, or just culture lovers who might be able to take advantage of this stuff. One one example that I think Catherine Trendacosta wrote about on on the website there at EFF that we didn't talk about on in the interview would be like, say, some kind of... um, you know, Matthew Lassar, for instance, could create an episode of his podcast and radio program where he um, where he digs deep into uh, World War One era sound recordings. And you can imagine that uh, 101 years after that era, um, those sound recordings should be in the public domain. But they aren't necessarily yet. It's complicated. As we've learned, it's complicated. Yeah. And so so that documentary, which has a lot of value, uh, you know, certain creators might not make that because of because of worrying about licensing mm-hmm. when it should be much more simple. And and I, I do want to clarify things for people who are in radio, because I wouldn't want people to accidentally walk away with the wrong impression. If you have a broadcast radio program on a broadcast radio station in the United States, a licensed station, college, community, public radio station, commercial radio station, right now nothing is preventing you from playing these records without concern. Because the laws are in place, your station is paying royalties on these via the songwriting royalties, ASCAP and BMI. Um, are two organizations that collect these royalties, and you don't have to pay royalties on the so-called public performance, exempted in law, your broadcast station. So if anyone's sitting here worrying, oh my goodness, I, I actually play a lot of music from before 1972, um, am I causing problems for my station? The answer is no. For When it comes to playing them on your radio station, but in so many other sorts of expressions, if you want to put it on your blog, on your website, now it's very difficult. If you wanted to have uh, permanent archives of that radio show up on your radio station, Well, that's complicated website. to begin with. Yes, it that, is. That's otherwise <laughs> even more complicated, and I don't want to go down that— Because we haven't—because that problem hasn't—that knot has not been untied by today's— Correct. And we're not here to give you advice whether you should or should not do that. I just wanted to make sure that we're not accidentally creating anxiety where there need not be any. Would that be a good call-in show or a bad call-in show where people <laughs> call up for advice on copyright? We would call it the I'm not a lawyer show is God, what we would call that. <laughs> it would not be a good show because there are no easy answers. In- there's very rarely easy answers. Yeah. You know, there's a few easy answers. And luckily, one of them is at a broadcast station in the United States. Right. Uh, you can play most sound recordings that were released. Shows over. F- Question use. answered. But Question all the other, answered. all the other calling questions, all the other platforms, straight are, to the weeds. You could call this much more difficult. This podcast straight into the weeds. Yeah, and and you can see how that provides these constraints, and and it's constraints that you know that people we put on ourselves, and it's something I think we we talked out with Catherine talking about how an archivist may not do something and may not distribute some content because they don't want to imperil the organization they work for inadvertently put them into the crosshairs right you know and and all make the trouble, time make trouble for themselves by making trouble and 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 most people 
you know, they want to, they, in principle, they want to obey the law. They want to, they, and, and they want, and they want to be ethical in their actions and don't want to inadvertently cause harm to people. And, and so it's understandable that, that there's caution and people act with caution. And it's, and so when it gets so absolutely, uh, vague and, 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 and fuzzy, you can see how that makes people go, well, for, well, forget it. <laughs> you know, uh, I was going to take these, uh, old, uh, 78s I found in, in my grandparents' basement, uh, digitize them and put them online because I, I'm worried that they'll, you know, these recordings will fade into obscurity and saying, no, it's, you know what, that's too much. That's too much of a risk. It's too much of a problem. Not that, you know, you're worried that you're all of a sudden going to find yourself in court so much as that you don't even want to deal with the nasty email or letter that comes and tells you to stop doing that. And and that's an understandable thing that somebody might want to avoid. Um, but that, that sort of gets at the essence of this and, and why uh, there are folks like uh, Catherine at the Electronic Frontier Foundation who are interested in, in seeing greater clarity come to the circumstances. And it's why we're talking about it here, you know, uh, on, on this podcast. Uh, there's And radio show. It, and there's probably very few show radio yeah. shows and podcasts attempting to take this on, in part because it's it's tough to wrap your head around. I, I'm thinking about certain uh, shows that I've loved that we've talked about on Radio Survivor that make extensive use of, of materials uh, both public domain and copyright. And often when they're doing it live on the radio, right. which is ephemeral uh, for all intents and purposes, um, you know, the implications are minimal, right? And, 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 you know, as we talked briefly with Catherine, I mean, there, there is fair use. There is the opportunity to reuse and appropriate and comment upon culture, uh, you know, but when we get down to, you know, full songs, full records, right. um, full recordings, well, now, you know, it's it's much more difficult to declare something as as fair use. And we really are thinking about uh, this, you know, and, and one last thing, I mean, I do want to point out, and, and I think we mentioned in the interview, but I think it's good for people to understand. There, there are no, there's no copyright police going out and, and listening to everything that goes along. It is a complaint-driven process. That is, if there's an owner of a copyright that determines or believes that you are using their intellectual property incorrectly, that they are owed royalties, that or they simply don't think you should be doing it all, they have the right to go after you, to ask you to stop, and in, and in some cases ask you for compensation for doing so. Uh, that is the way the law works. Of course, it's complex when you don't even know who might own the copyright because of the fact that it's a so-called orphan work. But it doesn't mean the work itself is not copyrighted. Uh, just because somebody has sort of lost contact with their thing that they made doesn't mean that the copyright isn't there and someone can't crawl the woodwork and find that copyright. But it is not the case that there is uh, effectively somebody with a copyright uh laser detector on around the bend waiting to zap you people feel that way because if you put things up on youtube youtube will identify that that there's a copyright there are there are copyright laser software yes but that those are being used by private companies by private organizations there's not the copyright enforcement bureau of of the united states government that's not my way of saying well then don't worry about it it's sort of understanding that how the system works that it that it really is about someone hearing about your use or seeing your use and deciding that they don't like it and that they have the means and the ability that it is their right to be able to do something about it and and just kind of 
put that all into perspective there. I don't know whether I've just clouded it more or <laughs> I've think, had a clarity. I mean, I think it's clear today on Radio Survivor that this is a cloudy issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still glad we tried. So we'd love to hear from you. What do you think? I mean, you know, and, and in some cases, uh, you, there may be people who are musicians out there who are like, I would like uh, my interest in recordings you know, that things that I made that are my creative work, I would like that to be clear. And I want to make sure that I retain my right to be paid for doing that work. And we understand that as well. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, you can listen to Radio Survivor online at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. So if you miss an episode or you came in halfway on the radio and you want to hear the whole thing, go back and you can go through our extensive archive of more than 100 and 50 episodes. We have covered this before. In, not quite this way. Well, we, we continue to follow this. We follow copyright. I, yes. I'll tell listeners that episode one of Radio yes, Survivor. Yes, that's right. Which might, may sound significantly different than episode 150 whatever. But on episode one, we talked about music licensing and... Uh, and the free music archive, yeah, which the, created an archive of music that... It, with the intention that it is there for people to use without having to get right. those permissions. There's a nice little switch... A nice little toggle that you can click to say, show me all the music in the public domain, Free Music Archive, and it will. And then you know uh, with certainty, if you're a podcaster, that that's a song I can use in my in my recording. Or it'll tell you if it's a Creative Commons license, which is sort of a way for a creator to tell you, I'm okay with you doing this or this, but yeah. I'm not okay with you doing that. And you can follow their instructions and know that you are in the clear. Yeah, that, again, a foundational issue for us here at Radio Survivor because we care about creators and listeners. What can you make and what can you hear? What can you view? Those are all important issues to us, and that's why we remain dogged on these things. We'd love it if you could help us out to keep doing this work. To find out more, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Paul Reese Mendel, thank you so much for joining me today here on Radio Survivor. Always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for spending another hour with us.